Welcome to the March 12, 2020 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll discuss a novel treatment for Epstein-Barr virus-associated hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis. Learn more about the behavior of leukemic clones in patients with acute myeloid leukemia receiving venetoclax-based combination therapies, and review the role of the integrin alpha-9-beta-1 in arterial thrombosis. First up, we'll discuss results from the blood article entitled Nivolumab Treatment for Relapsed Refractory Epstein-Barr Virus-Associated Hemophagocytic Lymphohistiocytosis in Adults, presented by Peng Peng Liu and Zhang Yu Pan and colleagues from West China Hospital of Sichuan University, China. Epstein-Barr virus-associated hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, commonly referred to as EBV-HLH, is a life-threatening hyperinflammatory syndrome triggered by EBV infection. It often becomes relapsed or refractory given that atoposide-based regimens cannot effectively clear the virus. Although there is currently no standard treatment for EBV-HLH in adults, a treatment of atoposide and dexamethasone can lead to early remission. However, these regimens often end with rapid relapses. Relapsed or refractory EBV-HLH is invariably lethal in adults unless allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation is performed. Unfortunately, matched donors are limited and allogeneic HSCT also causes complications that influence patients' long-term survival and quality of life. For patients without a donor, various salvage regimens have been tried, but the demand continues for better therapeutic strategies for relapsed refractory EBV-HLH. This insightful investigation reports the promising response of adults with relapsed refractory EBV-associated HLH to treatment with nivolumab, a PD-1 inhibitor. The authors noted that the challenging dilemma for EBV-HLH treatment is that chemotherapies aimed at eliminating the syndrome-causing hyperactive immune cells also impair the capacity of patients' immune systems to clear EBV, the disease initiator. Programmed cell death 1, or PD-1 inhibitors, are monoclonal antibodies that have shown exciting potential as anti-cancer therapy. These immune checkpoint inhibitors have also been demonstrated to have a possible immunological role in the treatment of viral and other infections. These prior studies showed that PD-1 expression was upregulated in exhausted T-cells and that its inhibition helped restore dysfunctional CD8 T-cell immune responses. Immune checkpoint blockade has also shown encouraging results in progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy patients with JC virus and in virus-associated malignancies. The authors considered that enhanced immunity after PD-1 blockade that helps to restrain cancer cells could also clear EBV infection, However, it is unknown whether PD-1 antibodies would be safe and effective treatment for relapsed refractory EBV-HLH. The team proceeded to analyze the data of seven relapsed refractory EBV-HLH patients treated with nivolumab on compassionate use in West China Hospital. Multiple doses were given, initially every three to four weeks as induction therapy, 
and then every three months as maintenance. Six patients responded, including one patient who had only a transient response. Five achieved and remained in clinical complete remission for a median follow-up of 16 months. Both plasma and cellular EBV were completely eradicated in four of these patients. Single-cell RNA sequencing analysis showed that hyperactive monocytes and macrophages and ineffective CD8 T-cells with an unbalanced activation program were associated with relapsed refractory EBV-HLH. Nivolumab treatment expanded PD-1-positive T-cells and restored the expression of HLH-associated degranulation and co-stimulatory genes in CD8 T-cells. Thus, this study suggests that nivolumab as a monotherapy is a promising approach to treat relapsed refractory EBV-HLH and appears to act by restoring an unbalanced anti-EBV program of the immune system. And considering the eradication of plasma and cellular EBV in four of the seven patients, Restoration of immune function by anti-PD-1 targeted therapy might have the potential to treat EBV-driven HLH without resorting to allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplant. However, it is also evident that prospective studies with larger cohorts of patients and longer off-therapy follow-up are warranted, along with further mechanistic studies. Next, let's review the blood article entitled Molecular Patterns of Response and Treatment Failure After Frontline Venetoclax Combinations in Older Patients with AML by Courtney DiNardo from the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center and Ng Tiong from the Alfred Hospital and the Australian Center for Blood Diseases at Monash University and colleagues. Unfit older patients with AML have limited treatment options and, unfortunately, experience only a modest benefit from treatment with DNA methyltransferase inhibitors and low-dose cytarabine. Although higher clinical responses may be achieved with intensive chemotherapy, durability is generally short-lived and counterbalanced by higher toxicities. Excitingly, the BCL2 inhibitor venetoclax combined with hypomethylating agents or low-dose cytarabine represents an important new therapy for older or unfit patients with AML. There have been no head-to-head -head studies providing the data necessary to make more informed decisions when choosing a regimen for newly diagnosed older AML patients. The study by DiNardo, Tiong, and colleagues provides some important new insights. The investigators analyzed 81 patients receiving venetoclax-based combinations within two recently reported clinical trials. The mean age was 74 years, with a range from 62 to 87. They sought to identify molecular correlates of prognosis in three subgroups of patients, those who achieved durable remission, those who had an initial response followed by relapse, known as adaptive resistance, and those that had refractory disease, known as primary resistance. Overall, complete remissions, or complete remissions with incomplete hematologic recovery, occurred in 64% of the patients. Mutations in NPM1 or IDH2 were associated with the highest response rates and most durable remissions, as detected in 18 patients whose responses lasted longer than 12 months. In AML with NPM1 mutations, measurable residual disease was eliminated in most cases. 
In the group of patients who achieved initial remission but then relapsed, representing approximately 31% of the cohort, molecular analysis showed progressive expansion of clones with activated kinases, particularly FLT3-ITD or biallelic TP53 mutations. In functional studies, the team also observed resistance to venetoclax alone, as well as in cytotoxic drug combinations in the presence of FLT3-ITD gain or TP53 loss. Finally, analysis of those patients with primary refractory AML revealed three patterns of resistance, with mutations in either TP53, RUNX1, or activating kinase mutations. While patients are considered to have refractory disease based on total blast counts alone, molecular profiling before and after only one cycle of therapy revealed a surprising degree of clonal heterogeneity. This included differential selection of drug-resistant leukemic clones evolving after a single cycle of treatment, as well as interval reduction of other clones. These findings highlight the potential for rapid, polyclonal, and divergent changes in clonal architecture, even among patients with no morphologic response to treatment. In summary, venetoclax, in combination with conventional low-intensity approaches, is a promising initial therapy for older patients with AML. The findings in this informative study highlight molecular determinants of long-term response and adaptive resistance to venetoclax-based combination therapy that will be useful for guiding future management of older patients with AML. Our last topic examines data presented in a brief report published in Blood entitled Targeting Myeloid Cell-Specific Integrin Alpha-9 Beta-1 Inhibits Arterial Thrombosis in Mice by Nirav Dinesha, Manasa Nayak, and colleagues from the University of Iowa. Leukocytes, predominantly neutrophils, influence multiple aspects of thrombosis. Prior evidence suggests that neutrophils contribute to thrombosis via several mechanisms, including the formation of neutrophil extracellular traps, commonly referred to as NETs. According to the authors, the integrin alpha-9-beta-1, which is absent on platelets, is highly expressed on neutrophils when compared with monocytes. It undergoes affinity upregulation upon neutrophil activation and stabilizes adhesion to the activated endothelium. However, the role of alpha-9-beta-1 in arterial thrombosis remains unexplored. Taking on this challenge, Dinesha, Nayak, and colleagues generated novel mice in which expression of alpha-9 was genetically ablated in neutrophils, monocytes, and macrophages using lysemcree, mediated deletion of a fluxed alpha-9 gene. The team first determined that these mice, referred to as alpha-9 lysem cre mice, were less susceptible to arterial thrombosis in ferric chloride or laser injury-induced thrombosis models. Importantly, this effect was not associated with impairment of normal hemostasis. Interestingly, fewer numbers of neutrophils were detected in the arterial thrombus in alpha-9 lysemcree mice, suggesting fewer neutrophils were recruited to the injured endothelium. Showing that neutrophil expression of alpha-9 was important, transfusion of wild-type mouse neutrophils in alpha-9 lysemcree mice restored thrombosis similar to wild-type mice. 
Moreover, treatment of wild-type mice with an anti-integrin alpha-9 antibody also inhibited arterial thrombosis. In correlative in vitro studies, the percentage of alpha-9 lysemcre neutrophils releasing nets was significantly reduced compared to wild-type mouse neutrophils following stimulation with thrombin-activated platelets. Furthermore, in additional in vitro studies using alpha-9 lysemcre neutrophils, this team found a significant decrease in neutrophil-mediated platelet aggregation and neutrophil cathepsin G secretion. Thus, a key discovery of the investigation was that the integrin alpha-9-beta-1 in neutrophils promotes arterial thrombosis, which the author suggests is most likely mediated by enhanced netosis. These results highlight a novel role for alpha-9-beta-1 on the neutrophil membrane. This raises new questions highlighted in an accompanying commentary by Alexander Brill from the University of Birmingham, UK, and the Sessionov First Moscow State Medical University in Moscow. For example, whether this integrin plays a role in venous thrombosis, in addition to arterial thrombosis, could be a promising line of research since neutrophils and nets are known to be important in venous thrombosis as well. It also has been challenging to identify mechanisms of neutrophil recruitment to the site of thrombus development. Since fewer neutrophils get recruited to the thrombus in alpha-9 lysemcremice, alpha-9-beta-1 could bind a ligand either on certain cells in the thrombus or in the vessel wall. The extracellular matrix protein osteopontin is another ligand for alpha-9-beta-1. While it is currently unknown whether osteopontin is directly involved in thrombosis, it is reported to be potential biomarker for atherothrombotic ischemic stroke and deep vein thrombosis. Finally, another interesting line of inquiry is the mechanism through which engagement of neutrophil alpha-9-beta-1 promotes the formation of neutrophil extracellular traps when stimulated with thrombin-activated platelets. Identifying the many contributors to thrombosis is challenging. However, the data presented in this study, which focuses on targeting leukocytes rather than platelets or clotting factors, provides insights towards developing new strategies that make thrombosis treatment safer and more effective. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening. The Blood Podcast series is made possible in part by support from Servier Pharmaceuticals.